Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. How's everybody doing out there in podcast land? Well, uh, you're probably wondering what this podcast is all about, and it's about being a practical guitarist. We are going to have more than just discussions about gear. We're going to talk about news. We're going to talk about uh, getting gear in and out. We're going to talk about using your modes and scales. We're going to talk about everything on here and pretty much run the gambit. We're also going to have guests um, in future episodes, and uh, we'll be talking to them uh, about how to do whatever it is you like to do. Uh, I'm Jim, and uh, my practical side is that I work in cover bands. I don't um, uh, write music anymore. I haven't for years, uh, and I really don't have much interest in doing that. I enjoy working in cover bands. And Dave? Yeah. Um, so everything that Jim said is absolutely true. We've come together to put together a podcast that focuses on being a musician, uh, particularly a guitar player, and all of the skills necessary to do that, whether you're you know, in a gigging perspective or if you're a hobbyist or you know, the whole gamut, basically. Um, his background, of course, is that he's a gigging guitar player, and I'm completely the opposite. I'm actually a guy that plays mostly in my house. Uh, I do a lot of recording um, and use it as a way for me to express myself. Uh, not to say I don't gig occasionally, but for the most part, it's basically for my own uh, selfish needs. And I think that this week what we'll do is we'll talk a little bit about what we do, how we use our gear, and certainly you'll see that uh, the two of us do things similarly we are both guitar players, so we do uh, use uh, similar tools, but how do we go about using them? So, sure. Yeah. And Dave, go ahead. Kick us off there. Okay. So um, I've been playing for about 15 years uh, since I was like a sophomore in high school. Actually, I got my first guitar as a uh, reward for kind of getting my, my life together and get my grades up and stuff. Um, which is kind of funny because now it's like so many years down the road and it's like that's the only thing I carry with me from my <laughs> from my experience back then. Um, I play guitar religiously, like try to do it every day. Um, I know the hobbyist sec segment who I feel like I'm representing here. Um, a lot of us don't get that luxury because, you know, either we're new fathers or whatever. Life circumstances have come up that, that prevent us from doing that. That being said, um, in terms of, you know, being a player and like what drives me as a player, I'm very much the guy that uh, likes to, as I said earlier, play, play in my house, play by myself um, and write music. Uh, I write a, a wide variety of music from when I was in college. I started working with doing um, actually like orchestral scores and things like that, uh, just as a matter of interest. And uh, as I got older, I started getting more into the jazz side of things, and that really had a lot to do with the fact that I was taking guitar lessons at the time. But um, basically, what drives me is the creative urge. Um, it took a really long time for me to reach the perspective where I could see like a cover group and seeing that as artistry, to be completely honest. Um, 
now like it i see it in the same way that uh people perceive dance i guess wherein um maybe it's something that's pre-configured that's already been written down and you're performing it and what you bring to the table and how well you can execute it it's just as much as part of the art form as how well you can how you well you can create it from scratch um i think that's a really tough thing for people to to reach that conclusion but that's kind of where i'm at in my life right now um in terms of gear man i've had like everything over the years i started out um as many people did in the 90s and early 2000s with a, a digital amplifier um after a pair of solid state practice amps uh, my first guitar was a samic strat copy which had this like super thin basswood body and it i mean it dinged like if you looked at it the wrong way um <laughs> i had that guitar forever too i sold it to a co-worker um, who gave it to his kid as a starter guitar, and occasionally I'll see Facebook pictures of it. So it's kind of cool. I, I know it's out there making somebody happy now. Um, right after that guitar, I moved into – I had a couple other budget instruments, but the first real guitar I had was uh, actually sitting on the wall over here. It's a Fender uh, Stratocaster. It's a Jimmy Vaughn Strat. And uh, that was my main guitar through my high school, early college years when I was playing in uh, the, the band Lucid Vision here in Chicago. Um yeah, I, I have a deep reverence for that guitar. I've kept it all these years because, um, for one, I played a lot of shows with it, and uh, I have a, a kind of an attachment to it. Um, in terms of other instruments, the only other ones that really stuck around are that white Strat. Um, I bought uh, a GNL S500 about three years ago, um, which comes back to a teacher of mine who actually had one and ended up pawning it. So I didn't get the ability to buy it from him, which I probably would have at the time. Um, and that's another sad reality of being a musician is oftentimes um, our equipment is expensive. You want to you want to jump in, Jim, on that? Yeah, it can be. And you wind up selling it. And, and you know, we let go of something that we really love. I um, So I lived on uh, uh, borrowed instruments for the longest time. And I was in a group of kids that called themselves the secondhand band because uh, everything we owned was secondhand. And um, uh, I started out um, on a borrowed acoustic. Whenever I could borrow it, then it was mine. But it, I didn't own it. Um, and then uh, I went to an electric guitar. My first electric guitar was one that now people seek out. Um, and it was a piece of garbage, and I still think they're garbage. Um, it was it was a silver tone um, with the amp built into the uh, oh or, yeah built into the case. It was just god awful. And they have one here locally. I won't say where because I don't want to I don't want to sound negative. Um, well, they have one here locally right now at Music Go Round um, in Virginia Beach area, uh, but. Um, it is a, uh, to me, it's got awful guitar, but these things sell and, and people love them. But, you know, you didn't hear about them again until Jack White came along, right? And uh, anyway, I, I had one of those and then I finally saved up, got myself a Les Paul. I went away to the Navy, that got sold, um, and uh, I did not sell it, but um, it wasn't part of that decision. But anyway, it I got up, sold. <laughs> yeah, it got sold. That's what happens when you go in the Navy. Your record collection goes away, everything that you had. <laughs> you know, some people, some parents keep your room as a shrine. Um, some parents just get rid of it. But anyway, so then um, uh, I bought a um, Gibson Flying V2. I had a series of guitars that got away. So like you said, it's, it's heavy. Um, it's hard to 
it's hard to transfer. Um, I was moving from San Diego, uh, or actually I moved it from Chicago to San Diego. Um, I was moving from San Diego to New York, so I sold it in San Diego, which is why when I saw on another podcast that I won't mention, 60 Cycle Hump, <coughs> that um, uh, somebody saw a flying V2 in a store out in San Diego. I'm like, I wonder if that was mine, because they were only made for a very short time. There are not a lot of them around. Oh, sure, yeah. So that was one that got away. Um, anyway, and then uh, um, I bought a 12-string Yamaha with that when I got to Virginia, and I lived with that um, until it got stolen, um, and I played a beat-up um, acoustic for years. I went to my, my whiny acoustic years. We'll talk about those. Um, and <laughs> I, I, wrote a lot of, I wrote a lot of original music back then, right up until probably 1995, 96. And I just said, you know, this is, this is just not my thing. Um, so I started doing covers and played covers from then on. And I had played covers all the way through, but... Just I saw covers as, and that's how I'm going to do this. I don't want to give up my career. Um, so then just like you, I bought a Samick. I actually bought my Samick. It's funny because you bought yours in Chicago. I bought mine in Turkey, Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> it's funny because I'm sitting there. There's a guy from Jersey. There's a, there's a guy from Jersey. He's like, yeah, I'm from Jersey. Right? And, he, and he's like, um, oh, you want this guitar right here. This is a good one. Um, so I bought a Samick. <laughs> From a guy from Jersey in Istanbul, Turkey. That's hysterical. It's a true story. It was a big hollow body jazz type um, with the floating bridge. Not floating bridge like floating. I mean floating as in it just moved. Like if you put the <laughs> you took the strings off, put them back on, it went wherever it wanted. It just flew away. And if you banged on it hard enough, that bridge went around, you know, because it wasn't glued down. Yeah. And I didn't yeah, well, know like, what. What yeah. what year would this have been like like in the oh, late nineties or something? Yeah, early nineties. This was probably okay. ninety. Ooh, I think I was on the USS Mississippi, so it would have been either eighty nine or ninety. And um, then, and I don't know if Samick was. I had never seen a Samick in the states. That's not to say they weren't here. I just hadn't seen one. Um, yeah, they were a big piano manufacturer. Just so you know. Um, yeah. I, so yeah. And then. Um, so just to, to wrap it up, um, I went from my Samick, I've got a lot of, I've had a lot of guitars. I went from my Samick to a Strat, sold the Samick, bought a Strat, $500, American Standard Strat. Look at how much they go for now. How about that? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I sold it for almost double what I paid and I bought it used. Um, and I had heavily modified it. I'd put an LR bar, bags acoustic, um, in the bridge and everything. It just started to be where <sighs> Strat's just. At first, I was like, oh, yeah, Strat, of course, I was a country band. The only guy in a country band that didn't own a telly. The bass player that played a Reckenbacker. I mean, you know, I mean, I yeah. just didn't, I, I never fit into anything I did. Um, and uh, so um, then I had Paul Reed Smith. I still have um, Paul Reed Smith. And then I went to, um, uh, I bought a uh, Gibson um, Les Paul, and then just a few days ago, I bought an SG. Um, and in the meantime, I had gone through a PRS 24 uh, uh, um, SE and a um, Gibson Firebird. And we'll talk about why I didn't really stick with either one of them. Um, and then what did they do? They got an Explorer in. The day I walked out with that SG, two hours later, an Explorer walked in. And, I, and that's actually the guitar I was looking for. So, But I'm, I, I'm kind of falling for the SG and I think I'll just hang on to it put burst buckers in it later 
Um, yeah. Because the classic 57s don't really have the punch I want, but we'll talk about those. And uh, so now I'm running um, uh, for amps. I was running, you know, Fender for the longest time. I had a Fender DeVille, um, 2x12, Backbreaker, just a just an awful guitarist. Or I mean, a draw, um, uh, amp for that. You, you want to talk about weightlifting. Lift that and... <laughs> and and I was in a band where they actually had me rolling a cab. I would roll a 4 by 12 cab and that amp. Imagine how loud, okay, a Fender DeVille is, okay? 40, yeah, they're loud uh, enough as is. Miles. I mean. And then they had me hooking up to a 4 by 12 because we did a lot of out, outdoor uh, festivals. You want to make money as a, as a um, Cover musician, that's certainly one of the things to do. Anyway, so now I run uh, myself through a, a Marshall DSL, and I just last night picked up a second DSL so I would have uh, a backup slash rehearsal. Um, so that's really what it's for, is, is for practicing. I don't really really record myself very much. Um, you know, I have, I have the equipment. I have the mics, and I have the DAW, and I have everything. I go out, and I buy all this crap. And we could talk about that too. How much oh, crap yeah. have you bought? Let's let's talk about that right now. How much crap have you bought in the past you've never used? I mean, that you you literally bought it going, this is what I'm gonna do with it, and you haven't used it. Is there anything like that? Uh, oh god, yeah, and reset too. Um, I had a Fender Princeton up until about six months ago, uh, the 65 reissue, um, and I got a steal of a deal on it. I got it used for like 500 bucks from some guy local. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bought it. I, I lived with it. I, I bought it with the intention of using it as a home uh, pedal platform, right? Right. So I I was never happy with any of the drive sounds out of it, and I know everybody's like, just use a Tube Screamer. Like, Tube Screamers are great yeah. through, through black face fenders. So I went and I bought the little mini Tube Screamer for like 69 bucks. Yep. It's sitting in the box. I think I've opened it twice. <laughs> it's yeah. sitting – like, I, it's in my living room right now, sitting in the box. It's, it's going to get sold. I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's a matter of time. But um, it's not that the pedal's bad. The pedal's fine. I just – I have no use for a Tube Screamer. Yeah. So. Yeah, so what you know, I have um, I have Cakewalk, I have uh, Ableton, <laughs> I have um, uh, a Tascam uh, four channel uh, DAW physical DAW, um, and I also have, uh, but my son does use it, a um, Focusrite, uh, okay. the basic Focusrite. Um, he uses yeah. this as a two channel mixer, a four channel mixer. And um, I have a couple of mixers. I have Behringer mixer, a couple other mixers. Um, I had a Mackie 16-channel mixer forever. And it came from the days when your mixer was so big and so heavy that, you know, it was like this monstrous thing. And, and I always had to carry everything because um, everywhere I went, it was either up over curbs and up over this and that. And all these musicians, I'm like, you know, you've got a dolly, sure, but it's only good on the flat surfaces. And, and I'm trying to move things in and out of a club, you know, um, and it just it just doesn't work. And, you know, um, I have uh, I have microphones I've never used. I have three microphones I've never turned on. SM57, um, because I use my E609. The SM57 yeah. is just a backup. I have bags of cables I've never um, opened up, taken them out <laughs> of the plastic. 
And he's like, hey, you should buy these new cables. I don't use the ones I have. I'm just not going to, you know. And um, uh, that's that's another rabbit hole, you know, you go down. But I, I have all this stuff, and I just don't use it. And Yeah, dude, what, when you get into that expensive stuff, though, like, like you're talking about mixing consoles, and then I've got, like, I've got amps and stuff laying around that I barely touch. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, at some point you just go, I got to clean house. I got to sell all this stuff because I got to put the money into something that I'll actually use. <laughs> That's what I did to get the, so to get the gold top, I sold my mixer. I sold my power amps, my QSCs. And, um, you know, I had a, a SKB uh, rack, portable rack um, that was uh, eight or 12 units. Um, yeah, I want to say it was eight because it was relatively portable. When I say portable, that's like the old portable computers. You mm-hmm. know, remember those? Yeah, the foldable like briefcase yeah. things. Yeah, <laughs> they they weighed had a couple of those. Yeah, they weighed eighteen pounds and and yeah. uh, had a CRT um, twenty minute battery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> twenty minute battery. Exactly right. We have to do this meeting very quickly. Um, yeah, so I, uh, you know, but I'm a. St- I'm also the probably the difference between you and I. I am not a pedal user, so um, what I normally do is I get the other guitar player. I go, okay, you've got your stuff set up. Now let's set mine up. Not me. I'm not gonna set it up. Now let's set it up to get a tone that's not gonna step on you. That will, mm-hmm. um, you know, people will be able to hear. It won't be drowned. That won't drown out the vocals, and won't be drowned out by you or the bass player. And those are the things that you and you fight those room for room. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah. You you just the, those are the things that you know. Every time you walk into a room, you battle your sound. And we mic everything. So um, if I could give any advice to any band that's like, oh, we could just go here and we don't need amps, or I mean, we don't need uh, we don't need to mic stuff. I suggest you mic everything from years and years and years of experience, having gone with and without microphones on the on the amps. You got to mic something. You've got to get something, whether it's to put it into the monitors for the other guys to even it out across the stage, or um, for the audience. You should always mic everything, everything. Now we are we are lucky. We have e drums, so the drums are mic'd by design, um, but. That's, uh, you know. Yeah. So, so now for studio, you sit at home. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take a devil's advocate side of things. I think I work harder than you because I, I get up. I have, to, I have to lug. You know, a club owner goes, yeah, and we, we, I want you to come in here. You guys to all come in here for $350 or four. And I was like, uh, well, you know, you're paying me like $5 an hour. You realize that, right? And you're not even paying me. You know, we rehearse for free. We do that of our own accord. And so we grab our equipment. I have to lug it into the car. I have to get it there. I have to lug it out. I have to set it up. Cartage. Yep. I have, we have to mic it up. We have to do a sound check. Nine times out of ten. Uh, could you guys turn down a little for that sound check? We've, we've still got people eating. Yeah, we realize that. We're not yeah. being – nobody's – I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm just saying that that's a reality you have to deal with. And then so, okay, we're cha- sound checking at, at this volume level, way down here, right? And then, um, oh, now you're live and you're up here 
because people are talking and they're yelling and they're asking for beers and some of them are dancing and, and it gets a little different. The energy level changes. Um, yeah, oh yeah. And your sounds change as you, as you increase those levels. Um, so we try to get an overall balanced sound, you know, at a low level, and then we just try to increase it a little bit each time. But then there's that, do you hire a sound guy? Do you not hire a sound guy? Is it worth it? Yeah, it's more money, more money out of your cut. Like, absolutely. I understand. More money, more problems. That's right. That's what it is. And then, and then at the end of the night, after everybody does it, we break down and whoever pays us always waits until the very last second. Until yep. they have nothing else to do but hand us an They're envelope. They're walking out to the car and they're like, here's your money. <laughs> yeah. And then there's an envelope with a check or, you know, or a cash in it. And it's just, it's just, uh, you know, and the check, who's it going to be made out to? Because we have to put it on our taxes and, right. you know, who's, and then we have to divide that out and we have to do W-9s and it becomes a bit of a pain in the rear. Okay. So from the from the studio perspective i would basically agree you work harder in the terms of the physical stuff like being able to you know have to actually haul your stuff around um i guess it really depends because like what i do everything's set up in the house basically um i do have a tremendously large pedal board that's at a rehearsal space it's actually my parents place um they're kind enough they have a a lot of open space because it's just the two of them living in a in a large house um, that they've allowed me to use a portion of their their place to practice and rehearse and to write music, et cetera. Um, but my my studio is actually in my condo, which is very small. Um, I literally just have a small two channel interface and uh, a little MIDI controller, and basically my guitar sounds are all done via some sort of direct method. Um, I do mic up at my parents occasionally when I when I really am going for a specific tonality. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, like there's not a whole lot of hauling going on. Um, I would I would love to haul my pedal board back and forth, but to be honest with you, it becomes such a pain in the butt that it's just like why bother? I'll just leave it at my parents and I'll just use uh, DAW for everything. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know when I do go to gigs, uh, yeah, I'm hauling you know same amount of stuff. Um, that being said, I'm even trying to slim that down as uh, Jim Jim and I have been discussing kind of offline. Uh, I'm looking at the super high-end digital stuff now because even though it's you know in the ballpark of a thousand to you know twenty-five hundred dollars, really, uh, the reality is when you start totaling up the, the pedals you have on your board and just talking about the used values, it's not hard to approach that number. Um, and so for me, it's like I want to be able to go to these gigs and be able to haul this thing back and forth and use it in the studio and do all these flexible things with it and multiple locations. Yeah, cartridge becomes an issue. I really don't want to carry, you know, a 45-pound amplifier, a 45-pound pedal board, a 20-pound guitar, actually a pair of 20-pound guitars because you should never gig without a backup. Nope. Um, you know, and those kind of things are, are a huge issue. And, of course, I know I'm spoiled. Uh, I, you know, and that's part of the reason why I actually like recording in the studios because I have freedom to flexibility to do what I, to do what I want. Um, that being said, my writing process is actually very different now. Um, I tend to put myself into constraints where I'm just like, I'm going to play something and it's going to be something good. And so there's no, I'm not recording the riff into a computer or something. I might use a looper just to capture the idea. But for the most part, it's just raw and then go back and then I massage it and put it into my DAW and try to figure out how I'm going to structure it and go from there. Um, 
our generation, specifically those of us that have grown up in the DAW world, look at recording as a totally different thing as to what, you know, the people that are even five years older than us, how they perceive recording. I mean, just, just the change from using two-inch tape to going to, or even a cassette tape, um, really, to going to digital media where you could cut and splice things easily and move things around. I mean, these guys had to perform whole songs from front to end to get the basic tracks down. It isn't like what we do now where it's all overdubbed and I'll just play the chorus and the verse and all this. So it's just ridiculous. I see it as being like this whole um, this whole song and dance. So I'm actually trying to make it more difficult for myself. And it's, it's helped me improve as a musician to sit there and say, you know what? I'm not going to do any overdubs on this track. I'm going to play the entire guitar part, one guitar, all the way through. No overdubs. I'm not going to double it, which is – that's scary to a lot of people. It's like, what are you going to – you mean you're going to rely on your guitar by itself? You're not going to double it? No. Why would I double it? If you go hear me in a club, I'm not going to have another guitar player with me. It's just going to be me. So my sounds need to be big and bold and, and fit that mix. And by God, they better not be doubled. <laughs> You know, you talk about that. So, um, so let's put it in perspective. What's your What's your actual age? Uh, I am thirty two years old. I will be thirty three in December. Okay, so I've got you by over twenty years. I am fifty three, and I yeah. will be fifty four in May. So, um, and we're recording this bro- this uh, podcast in October of twenty seventeen. So. Um, just to just to give everybody perspective, you know, we we purposely have teamed up because we are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I play music out, and um, Dave is writing music at home. So hopefully, he's writing music that one day I will wind up having to cover because it's that popular. And the you know the the crux of this whole um, thing is to help people understand the difference. Um, and the differences, which are huge, in some of the decisions that we make as musicians and some of the sacrifices that we make as musicians. Because a club musician might have to make sacrifices, obviously, that a touring musician with um, some money backing them, which is getting to be almost zero yeah. these days. Even Even some of the acts you think are getting money to do those tours are actually putting that money, they're fronting that money in hopes to make it back. I think recently, there was a few months back, I saw a um, uh, an interesting article that's actually been floating around for a couple of years about a band that shelled out something like $27,000 to uh, go on tour, and it was only like a 12-city tour, uh, relatively local. I want to say it, it covered like from Fresno down to San Diego or something like that. Okay. Um, and... Uh, they talked about the amount of money they spent um, for that tour, and they actually lost money on the tour. It was only—it actually only came up to a couple grand that they lost because they included, of course, and these are things you have to include. They included their food, they included their mileage, they included their, you know, their their sure. merch, you know. But they also took money in from the merch. They took in money in from um, ticketing. But you have to some of these places, um, uh, you have to rent the hall. Oh know? yeah. If you're not a big name. The hall is fine when you coming in, but you got to rent it. And um, so you're out there, um, uh, you're doing your own marketing. They, they had marketing costs and everything else. They lost money on the tour in hopes that the end result 
would be, hey, people are watching our YouTube channel. People are are watching us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's a, it, what we're trying to do. Obviously, you and I are looking at the two ends of the spectrum. Now, one of the things that you brought up I thought was interesting is you um, and the reason I asked for your age is that you um, were discussing the um, fact that recording is different. So as a kid, when I grew up, we had a, a um, multi-track recorder. Um, I think it was a four-track. And um, yeah, it was a four-track. We, want, we wanted to get an eight-track. We had a four-track. Anyway, um, so you had to get everything on four tracks or on two tracks and bounce them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, and people that are not... Um, uh, Familiar with bouncing. bouncing. What? What's that, guys? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, Dave, why don't you talk about what bouncing is before we get going? Okay, so so bouncing is when you take, um, and, and this is, I've had to do this in the past, but this is something you don't really get into a lot in the digital realm, particularly if you're buying your software and not using the freebie softwares because your track limitation. But anyway, right. the whole idea is basically that you take four or five tracks or whatever number of tracks, and then you bounce them down to a stereo pair. That way, you can then use the remaining tracks that you have available to record more material. So when you're talking about a four or an eight track uh, recording setup, you're talking about literally only having four separate microphones going at a time to record inputs or you know other sound sources or whatever it ha- whatever it may be. And the idea is that you can now turn that into eight or sixteen by bouncing. The caveat and the difficult part, even with bouncing, was the limitation of the noise level because every time you combine two tracks together you double the noise level on those two tracks you, right. you basically give more white noise in the bass and then the more the more you do that 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 underlying foundation becomes corrupted with white noise and then the audio quality becomes garbage basically which is why a lot of those old recordings um you you did one of two things you went in with um the mentality that we're going to do an antenna recording or we stop and we start over. Take it from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much you were recording live. Um, or um, you uh, went in and you um, uh, had the mentality that, uh, okay, there's going to be um, as few tracks as possible. Um, and you recorded drums. You recorded, uh, well, actually, typically it was drums and bass rhythm section then you'd bounce that with your guitars and whatever melodic instruments you had and then you'd um, do a vocal track and then you'd bounce everything down to two tracks from there so and then you had punch-ins and and you talked um, about that Uh, especially if you've had to bounce you got a punch in you got a punch in over top of the other ones and so that white noise that white noise is very minimal but you add it and add it and add it and like you said it becomes additive the more tracks you have to put together and when you think about it sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band they always talk about oh sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band was done on an eight track recorder yeah it was done on an eight track recorder but there were like 24 48 tracks they just kept, <laughs> they kept was doing it what w- w- was it an eight or a 16 because i remember that i know they just doubled the amount of tracks right before they did that record well um, they only no they recorded it on an eight track it and, was an eight. Okay. Yeah, and and so Pink Floyd. Now, when you think about it, you put that in perspective too. Pink Floyd recorded the Wall in nineteen seventy two, seventy three. Yeah, um, I have to apologize. That was actually the Dark Side of the Moon, not the Wall, on a sixteen track. 
and um, David Gilmore talks about the. Um, he uses the word the term "all hands on deck." He said, "Yeah, when we because were, they used, they didn't have automation in a lot of these cases, so you'd have like five or six people running favor, faders at any given time." It's, yep. Yeah. And now when you talk about that white noise thing, there's a famous song called I'm Not in Love, which you might not be familiar with, but folks in my era, most of us at least heard that earworm when we were growing up. And so there's this there's this uh, vocal intro. And um, so the, the band was called 10CC. They did this song. I can I can sing one line without getting us in trouble. I'm not in love. You know, so there was this there was this whole ah uh, that came in the beginning. And What they did was they literally recorded themselves all 12 notes of the scale. So -hmm. they had a, they had each person um, representative of each of the 12 notes. So, and then what they did was they ran that into a uh, 16 track and they were able to use the 16 track recorder, the faders as keyboard. So you, if you wanted to build a chord, it literally each of the inputs was just the key, just like just like you would use a keyboard. So you would bring in the notes you That's wanted, cool. but you had to fade them slowly. You didn't want them to. You didn't. First of all, they didn't have like the synthesizer way of doing it. Right. So you're fading them in and out. And if you get a chance to watch the the um, way that was recorded, it's pretty interesting. But anyway, what they did was there is a hiss. That's consistent across that whole thing. And it's, and it's that hiss that you're talking about. Because when you're taking three people, 12 tracks each, that's 36 tracks, right? If I did my yeah. math correctly. He's checking me on his calculator. And, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, so 36 tracks of, um, of uh, people that, that was, it had that, you know, all the way through. It sounded just like that. It sounded like somebody going, because you've got breath. It can be fun through. at times because you can you can you know hit the wah pedal and and filter it and whatnot. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> it was a, it was an interesting thing, you know. And and um, so I remember reading or watching an interview. I either read an read an interview or watched an interview with um, Ronnie Dunn. He was talking about the uh, recording of one of their albums. He's from Brooks and Dunn, and um, a plane flew overhead while they were recording. Now, this is in the day of digital. Mm-hmm. They were able to, that's on the final track. They were able to remove the plane and keep the track. I think I I'm would just, have find that engineer because I got some work for him. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I, I could not believe it because they recorded it at Ronnie's home. He has a, a home studio. And uh, that was one of the things he did. And I thought that that was just amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so... I, I didn't really talk about it too much in my intro. Um, I do have some recording science uh, college experience. I took I took two years of uh, recording science when I was in college, um, just as an elective. Uh, and you know, we were we were right on the cusp of um, actually. The the professor that taught the course um, was kind of frustrated because he knew that two inch tapes still existed and there were places where they were using it, but this college campus didn't have the budget to teach two inch tape as part of the curriculum. Um, because two inch tape is really expensive too. And people don't talk about that. Uh, I'm sure it was cheaper, um, back when it was more popular, but now, but nowadays 
I mean, it, you, you're talking several thousand dollars to do a record just in the cost of the tape. That's right. Dave Grohl, Dave Grohl talked about that recently. He talked about, because he uses uh, tape and he uses Neiman, Neiman, Neiman. Uh, no, con- good stuff. Neumanns. Yeah, consoles. Yeah. Neumanns, Neumanns, yeah. Consoles. I never knew, I know how to spell it, I just don't know how to say it. I'm not, you know, and that's the other thing. It's like for most of us, uh, even me included, I, I'm a, you know, self-professed studio guy. Um, yeah, there's a big difference between using, you know, like the super, super high-end stuff, but I think it's diminishing returns. I think today, and this is a really big departure, even the quality of the home studio stuff has gotten way, way better than what it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, or even, or, you know, back when you'd go to a studio to record things. Um to the point where you can get a decent quality sound, and you and there are professional mixes that are done on home level stuff now. Um, it's just it's just a different world, and it, I it I respect that because like I I because I grew up in that cusp, like I could it's almost like standing on the edge of the precipice and looking back into the past and realizing, you know, the world we have right now is like this brave new frontier. I think a lot of people who are slightly younger than me take that for granted though. And I, and I want to, and that's kind of why I'm doing this podcast. I want to make sure that like, we still have that record and that reference back in terms of what makes a good musician and what people are really capable of rather than studio trickery and stuff like that. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, people forget, you get people my age um, who, I mean, you got to remember we're losing musicians that are my age, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Tom Petty, wasn't that much older uh, than I am, you know. We just lost him, and he was what only two. Oh, I know. It's 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 terrible loss. I was literally, um, I literally uh, broke down a little bit uh, over that. Oh, loss. I did. I did him. Him, and then we lost Greg Allman this year. Greg Allman. I mean, we've lost Dave Bowie. We've lost yeah. so many great people. I mean, I'm. I know I miss it. Gary Retrath. Um, you know, people that um, I grew up. They, they were my heroes directly. I mean, they, were, they weren't like people who influenced people. They were people who influenced me directly and, to, and people I saw in concert. And I knew, I mean, Rick, um, when uh, Richard Wright died from um, uh, Pink Floyd, you know, yeah. it, it broke my heart because I knew that right then, no matter what David Gilmore and Roger Waters were able to fix between them, there was never going to be a true Pink Floyd reunion again. And I oh, would no. never see the four of them on stage because I couldn't afford to get to Live Aid where I was out to see or right. something. I can't remember what it was. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, going back to that, um, you know, our, our uh, discussion, the people of my age, there's so many of them that hold on to those analog ideals. I was just watching um, uh, Six Sense with uh, Nikki Six, and he was talking to Kenny okay. Arnoff. And Kenny Arnoff is... Uh, um, was the drummer for um, uh, John Mellencamp. He's the famous, you know, Jack and Diane, you know, that whole thing. And um, which I'm sure I did a great job of beatboxing just now with. <laughs> and um, I mean, there is a reason I don't play drums. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, Kenny Arnoff was on there and he was talking about that. He was talking about how some people just don't want to let go of the the um, digital thing but what he was saying also is that a lot of producers and you hear it in the music nowadays is they're saying okay this was the perfect drum rhythm track we're just going to take that from the intro and splice it a hundred times through the song and he said what happens is you lose that the, the the personality of the instrument 
the more times it's just like uh, multiplicity that movie oh, it's, multiplicity it's, it's terrible right. i mean if you want to get down to the real nitty-gritty of it i can hit a snare drum twice at and, and even if this were physically possible obviously on a molecular level it's not we're gonna get into the science talk here i'm gonna use big words <laughs> when you hit, <laughs> well you use science you a, you're already okay. over my head <laughs> Let's build a robot. Let's let's get super hypothetical. Let's build a right. robot that has an insane level of precision, something mm-hmm. that you really couldn't build in real real life, that could hit a snare drum at the same level every single time. And I can tell you right now, because of the densities and changes in air, that snare drum will never vibrate exactly the same way. And that's what it, Arnoff was saying. That's exactly what he was saying. Now, that's not something that you're going to detect um, – easily like but you i think that there's almost a subconscious element there where you your brain knows it's fake and this is let me say this before you go further is that's exactly what i try to tell people when it comes to the audience i'm like you can do certain things but and and just like tuning and it comes down to tuning i say everybody should use the same tuner and like well you know, why not? You can use your tuner, I can use my because people don't know why they don't like something or they, they hear something wrong. They're not sure why. It is just what you're talking about. They're not sure why they don't know it. They're not sure what they're detecting, but they do detect it. Yeah, it's time. like a psycho it's almost like a psychoacoustic effect. Right. Like you could literally if you if you got if you got super good at it, and there are guys that do this in in Hollywood soundtrack work and that kind of stuff where they don't actually necessarily use a real drummer they'll take you know whatever drum software and they'll make a track and they can make it so that even when like somebody like me who listens to a lot of this stuff and I listen to it and I couldn't necessarily tell that it was a machine versus a real person but there but there's something always a little bit off about it and it but particularly um the use of a click and that kind of stuff um when you're get, just getting into recording, like it's real common to just use a click every time you record something. I cannot stress this enough. If you're getting into recording, don't use a click. Get the hell away from it because that's not real music. You, you need that human element. I use a click, but what I do is I'll play either a rhythm guitar track or whatever, and then I will match the click to the guitar track and do it sequentially over the t- life of the tempo. And so that way it's at least more natural feeling than if you were just going to sit there with a the metronome. Right, um, but but that's another perfect example of this. So it's a psychoacoustic effect where the human brain can process, and it and even though you can't really put your finger on it, and you're not thinking about it when you're listening to it, they recorded that with a click, or they didn't. That doesn't ever occur to your brain, but you know something's up, like dance music and club music and EDM and all that stuff. When you think about it, that's why that stuff sounds so mechanical, because there it because there it is literally no is exactly there is no human element. Exactly. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm not I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, this is awful. I'm just saying that that's where it starts to lose the, the human elephant or elephant. Elephant. Well, yeah. it's, it's huge. Enough. It's, it's the, the elephant, elephant in the room. room. Yeah, we both said that at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that is the thing. It is the elephant in the room. And what it is is that that um, I think that a lot of times what it is that, that the um, – I'm trying to fix my hair here the, – that um, – the uh, musicians miss about the old stuff isn't necessarily that uh, it's digital and I can hear this little thing and I can hear that little thing. I mean, I'm sure somebody hears it at some level. You know, they say that Barbara Streisand could hear notes that other people couldn't hear and blah, blah, blah. Um, but 
That's the one person. But when you talk about the the um, popular the populace as a whole, <clears throat> they're they're not really hearing that. But what they are hearing is when you take and you remove the human element, you remove what you know is real and replace it with something fake. And just like share, you know, with I believe in you know in love or whatever, she you know I believe or whatever the name of the song is. When they did that little thing with her voice, all of a sudden everybody was doing it, and all of a sudden everybody was like auto-correcting and auto-pitch correcting. And yeah, well, you know, and that's another one. Um, while we're on the subject, so pitch correction, like in general, you can tell pitch correction. Uh, and I know a lot of people say, "Oh, well, you can't hear it." If I showed you an example of pitch correction, if I took a vocal and I said, "This is the natural one," I said, "This is the pitch corrected one." I don't have to I have to tell you which one is which. I'll let you hear them both, and you'll say they're different. And then I'll tell you, well, one's pitch corrected, and you know, and you go, oh yeah, for sure. But the reality is, what she did on that track was she used so much pitch correction that she became like a robot, and it became a it became its own effect. Correct. Um, but it's no different than us using a guitar effect at that point. Exactly, exactly. And so I wanted to point out, like, yes, you, that is not a subtle use of it. But the, the subtle use of it is everywhere. It's in oh. everything. I can't tell you and, – and this is the one genre that you're going to laugh your butt off. But if you go and you listen to heavy metal, oh, any yeah. heavy metal, I don't care what subgenre, pitch correction is everywhere in that stuff now. It's, oh, yeah. it's hysterical to hear that growling vocal and then it's like got pitch correction on it. Yep. It's like, what, what are you thinking? Who are these producers? I want to find them. Is it the producer or is it the engineer at that point? I mean – I think it's both. I think it's both. I think they're both encouraging it. They're feeding each other. Because it's the thing that I don't get is that, that is what made. Okay, let's talk about some musicians that had not so perfect vocals, but still ran the gambit. The gambit. Mick, ja um, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. That's exactly the name that was at my. <laughs> Mick Jagger. Not perfect vocals. A, a vocal range of like nothing, right? And yeah. yet. He was able to take his swag. You know, there's a reason that, um, uh, what you call it, uh, Maroon 5 sang moves like Jagger. I mean, that guy just has swagger. And, um, and to have him be able to manipulate his voice to make you think he was in key and in tune. And oh, half yeah. the time he wasn't. And... It's it's a magical mystery tour to listen to him sing and have him, you know, uh, and for us to go, you know what? I can't imagine if somebody went back, remixed that, put put pitch correction on his vocal. I would know? actually want to do it just for a science experiment. Oh, <laughs> what would it sound like? Seriously. I, I, I mean, like, honestly, oh, that's why I want to do it. I'm curious. Uh, uh, sympathy for the devil. I can't imagine if they tried to pitch oh, yeah. correct that. That whole hoo-hoo. <laughs> oh. Or, you know, people talk about um, you can do that pitch correction thing, right, um, uh, with uh, a lot of the old um, harmonies. You think about the Bee Gees. There was no pitch correction. And, you know, I don't care what anybody says about the Bee Gees and their, and their you know, foray into disco. Those guys had decades already of yeah. music that they did. Um, over a decade of music that they did that was what a, incredible. What a, talented, what a talented group. I mean, I'm glad you're talking about the Bee Gees because that's one that like flies under the radar for so many people. Yeah. If you want to hear a group of musicians 
who can sing and play their instruments really, really freaking well, get some of their early records and listen to them because they are flawless. And these guys are super young. And listen to their isolated tracks. Listen to the isolated vocal tracks. And you can't hear mistakes. I mean, I'm sure somebody will go, there's one. But it's not like, you know... It It ain't like Mick Jagger, where the whole thing is a mistake. (laughs) But but again, like you said, you get so much swagger there that you can sell that. I'm working with a guy right now. He's not the greatest vocalist in the world. He's not even the greatest musician. But the reality is he's got that swagger. And I can I can work with that. And so that's why I've agreed to, to participate in that project. But like it's one of those things where sometimes that that trumps skill. But then again, for the rest of us, skill is good to have because it's going to it's going to keep you working. Essentially, that's all I have. I have no swagger. But I can say that, um, like, let's take guitarists, for example, you know, guitarists that were that had sloppy stuff. I mean, Eddie Van Halen himself admit that eruption is full of mistakes. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page, full of mistakes. But the swagger made it not matter. It Pete Townsend, full of mistakes. Jimi Hendrix, full of mistakes. But Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan. But you know what? It did not make a difference. That is not to say that they are not talented and genius because the genius is even beyond their musical capability it is the ability to um take that swagger and that you know that confidence you don't see them these are the days before you know mtv and be able to make the the audience hear through the the tinny little transistor radios half of us were using at the time and hear the the incredible music that people like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and whether you like them or not, the Beatles or the Bee Gees, you know, or whatever, were, were coming through with at the time. Yeah, and that's not to say that there weren't other little groups that were doing that too. And I, I, I think that's another another thing to point out here that's is right. that when you go back and you look at these um, – these giant bands like Jimmy Page and, and all these groups, part of the reason they were successful was because of the attitude that came came across in their music. But I think it's almost like we were talking about psychoacoustic effects and recording earlier. It's almost a psychoacoustic effect where you overlook the mistakes because there's something something so charismatic and magnanimous there that it just it just reaches into you and you and you feel it. Now that being said, there are tons of little bands at that same time that were doing similar things. And it's just – it's a bit of modal shift, I think, really, in the last really 20 years, 25 years of music where we've gone from envying the performance to envying um, really just – The performer. Uh, performer and in some, to some extent songcraft. Um, and by that, I mean the way we write songs is different now, especially in the pop industry. It used to be that you know one or two people might write a song. Now, I mean, you look at like anything from Beyonce or whoever, and there's like 15 writers on every track, and you're going, uh, yeah. what, you, what? What did you just contribute one word? I mean, <laughs> yeah. How much did you give to that track that you were able to get writing credit? Because I mean, now of course, it's it's a it could be a wives' table, it could be real, but supposedly the guitar player and bass player that came up with the riff for super freak weren't given any writing credits by James uh, or not James Brown. Um, Rick James, Rick James. Thank you. And that yet, doesn't surprise me from him though, to be honest. 
No, because uh, of his ego. From what I know of him, yeah. <laughs> his ego was, was a bit um, flamboyant. Legendary. <laughs> yes. Um, but that said, you know, those guys were appreciative to be on those tracks. And take, take the Wrecking Crew. You know who the Wrecking oh, Crew yeah. is, right? Oh, right. yeah. So we should do a whole podcast just about that. Yes, Wrecking yeah, Crew. we should. Yes, we should. Um, because Glenn Campbell, obviously, another loss. It was a, it was a terrible loss. It was a loss in my family because uh, um, of personal reasons. But um, that, you know, that guy, to lose him was just, uh, you know, he was, he was in the Wrecking Crew, which was a group of people um, who could read music. And he mm-hmm. couldn't read a word. He couldn't tell you what a G chord looked like. He just could play it. So he was genius, beyond genius. Sure. I mean, uh, and that's like, we. I think values have changed in the industry quite a bit. Um, yep. That's not to say that there are people like me out there who now can look back at this and kind of say, you know, I don't necessarily want to be the musician that is going to sit there and program a bunch of stuff and not be able to actually perform it. Yep. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think that some of that writing credit stuff that we see is for the positive, because again, there were a lot of people, like I said, the wrecking crew um, was an example of people who would come up with riffs on the fly. You know, the, the performer would come in with a basic pop uh, track. They would come up with a riff that would go over it. Carol Kay. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, then they would do this um, and then they'd get no credit. None. Zero. Zilch. Yeah. It's a sad, it's a sad part, though, too, about the industry is how how many like are the little guys that contribute to these tracks. And and, and here and I'll, I'll get into a deeper story about this. But how many of these little guys that are out there that have contributed to this stuff over the years that have really been unsung heroes, mostly. Um, you listen to any of the podcasts that are, you know, interviewing musicians and you'll see hundreds of names you don't recognize. And then you listen to them and you're like, oh, no, I know what you did. Like, I, yeah, like, I know you, like, you did this track and stuff. But it's really funny because even back in the time of the Beatles and stuff, take for example, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Now, pretty much everybody knows that that's an Eric Clapton solo on that song nowadays. But at that time, that was commonplace. Like, if you didn't want to play the solo, you just called an ace. You called yeah. the studio guy to come in and do it. Now we don't do that anymore. I mean, that's a, you don't need that. You're just going to come. You're going to program it with a computer. <laughs> or sometimes they would come in and they would say, "I want to be on that recording." And oh, I yeah. think that was. I think that was the case. I'm. I'm not 100 percent sure, but Clapton and and Harrison at the time, little did they know they were um, with the same woman. Um, well, one of them knew, the other one didn't. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Layla, anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, um, the fact is that they were uh, um, talking, or it, Clapton came in, I think, if I remember it, um, the story right, he came in and said, hey, I can lay that down. And I think on, and that's that's funny because then on Layla, um, that was, that was, um, uh, Clapton had a guest guitar player on Layla. Yeah, oh that's, yeah. That's Greg uh, Allman. I, 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 yeah, a little bit of uh, Dwayne Allman in there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dwayne, you know, he yeah, makes Dwayne. that track too. He makes that track too. Because I could yes, tell, like, I, I've been listening to him enough, like, I could tell who's who. And I'm listening on that thing and I'm like, dude, Eric just showed up. Like, that's basically all that happened there. <laughs> yep, yep. He was singing and, and Dwayne did that 
that incredibly. All of it. <laughs> incredibly. And what's funny is, so Dwayne at that point was still part of um, Muscle Shoals. Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, some people, I mean, the real fans of Dwayne Allman already know that he was a Muscle Shoals uh, studio guy. But yeah, um, yeah. a lot of people aren't um, aware that he was a studio musician before um, he, uh, and during the beginning, I think, of uh, the Allman Brothers. Um, there's a cat I'm thinking of that actually I wanted to bring up. Um, Tony Levin, bass player, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, yep. He's a perfect example. The guy has played on so much stuff Ugh. that he doesn't even know what he's played on anymore. Yeah. He's like, he's like, I'll hear something on the radio. I was re- reading an interview with him. He's like, I'll hear something on the radio. And someone will say, hey, Tony, you did a great job on that track. And he's like, I did I that? that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did that. But see, those guys were brought in. They were studio musicians. Um, uh, a band that was famous for uh, making use of this was uh, Steely Dan. Um, yeah. And they would go, yep, um, let's bring in six guys. Uh, for example, and they knew what six guys they wanted. That's what that's right. killed you. So, and they would so they would bring in six guitar players. Okay, you play this track. Okay, you play, and they paid every one of them. Yep. That was the thing. Paid every one of them. Came in, did it, and then, oh, we're gonna keep that one. The other guys' tracks are still in on file, and yep. they were paid. They were all paid equally. Nobody was given right writing rights, you know, or writing credits. Yep. And not all of them were even given. Um. Uh, um recording credit and what's funny is i think it was steve gad was talking about how he came in he would he did the intro to like uh, one of the songs he went you know he was yeah and there was a different drummer in the rest of the song he just used yeah. steve gad's part yeah well they were talking about uh that that's a really funny one because um really you know they had all these guitar players that would come in it was like a revolving door yep. but i think someone i somebody from the steely dan camp said they really only use tracks from like seven different guys yeah um and that's what's so funny and then of course you got the uh i forget what the one guitar player is uh who was actually one of the original members of the band and then like became like a studio guy because they basically just called him in for certain stuff <laughs> yeah and and uh again that's another loss we had um uh fagan yeah, Donald Fagan. Donald Fagan. Yeah. Um, and uh, so. Oh, it was Walter Becker. Donald Fagan's no, still alive. No, Fagan's around. Walter Becker. We lost Walter, yeah, it's Walter Becker. Walter Becker. Guitar, guitar player bassist. Yeah. Um, and I think most of the. What's funny is so um, one of the bass players, can't remember, Charlie. Can't remember his last name. Uh, yeah, Chuck, I can't either. Chuck something. Anyway, um, I'll look it up. But um, he. Uh, I'll, I'll put it in the notes. Um, he was talking about how he was brought in and they said, whatever you do, don't pop and slap. That pop and slap is oh, done. Yeah. Um, so he turned. He said, yep, I just turned like this. And they never okay. knew he did it. <laughs> well, well, Steely Dan's, a, Steely Dan's a perfect example for having this discussion because there have been so many stories about those guys, uh, Becker and, and Fagan over the years, coming in to like Larry Carlton and yep. whispering guitar solos. Like, we want you to play it like this. You know, and it's like, does that count as writer's credit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it's funny because um, uh, they, you know, they started out as a real band. And uh, it, it, there's a kind of a true, kind of an untrue um, uh, trivia question that goes around. Who was their first drummer? Chevy Chase. Yeah, yeah it was Chevy Chase, the actor. But, and, it, and it's funny because. But it's I don't not think really ever... true because they weren't really Steely Dan yet. 
Yeah, and they did. They never performed with him either, to my right. knowledge. Right. So I guess he still plays drums. I've heard that, but I. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah, and he was on uh, uh, Paul Simon's video there, but um, yeah. So we're coming up to an hour. Um, yeah. So we're gonna close this one. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We're certainly not done with our discussion, and we hope we you, uh, you find this interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have so many. I could take this in so many different directions right now, but uh, I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, I do want to take the time right now to make sure that we uh, talk about the other things that we're involved in, yep. just so that so that um, both Jim and I can get. You know, some people involved in the projects we, you know, we feel are like a labor of love kind of deal. Um, I, I myself have a, a, a Facebook group I run called the Guitar Resource Collective, which is a place for um, people who are learning to play the instrument or who actually have been playing for a really long time to share knowledge and information with other players so that we can all kind of build um, our repertoires based on what we all know. Uh, Jim, do you, you want to plug your project here? Yep. And as a matter of fact, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Guitar Resource Collective. So that's a place where you can go in, you can drop a uh, an audio track or a video track or both. And, or tab. Um, well, yeah, I, or I tablature. All the time. Um, uh, if you've got backing tracks and you'd like to share them, I know there's a lot of people that record backing tracks. Um, we are more than happy to uh, distribute. Um, Dave uh, um, keeps the trolls to a zero. So, um, you know, it's it's a safety zone. I have not had anyone belittle another player in there yet. Um, And if we do, they're they're gone. (laughs) That's right. And that is not to say that you can't make a comment to say, hey, you could have done this better. You could have done that better. It's more about not being um, a negative jerk. Yeah. Constructive, constructive comments. That's what we like. That's correct. And um, also there's a Facebook group called The Practicing Musician. Um, and in there, uh, that's for musicians of all kinds, um, even drummers who hang out with musicians. Oh, I'm going to get emails now, um, about, uh, uh, but anyway, um, the practicing musician is for people, even lighting people, um, you know, camera people, um, the people who do sound, you know, everybody that, uh, um, does something with musicians and for musicians and as musicians are uh, welcome to come in and share uh, what they do and how they do it. Also, yeah. um, um, I, I would like to plug my band, which is uh, the, um, <laughs> cause God knows that's the best way to, to uh, plug your band. Um, I am in a local <laughs> band, um, but I'm not going to plug the name. But I will say, if you get a chance to uh, check me out on Facebook, I'm Jim Woodard, and uh, I'm in Chesapeake, Virginia. Dave? Cool. Yeah, uh, well, if you're going to talk about your band, uh, actually, I don't have a band right now. Um, all my musical projects, if you want to find out about them, you can find out about them in the Guitar Resource Collective. I tend to be pretty verbose about um plugging my stuff out there so yeah uh the outfit i'm with right now that uh it's really just me and another player is called uh, black death doctors um we do have a website black death doctor uh, black death <laughs> we do not play heavy metal it sounds like a heavy metal name um there's some significance to that name and if, if you're interested you can hit me up and I'll, I'll let you know what it's all about yeah i uh, i uh, asked dave about that and i'll let you look into it but it is definitely not black metal <laughs> so okay everybody thanks a lot 
for tuning in. We've also got um, a couple other things, but we'll be talking about those on next week's podcast. So please tune in next week. We'll talk to you then.